implementing Bitcoin refutes many ideologies. It's, it is impossible to, at least intellectually, coherently, I mean, I'm sure people will still say these things, think these things, but it, it should, to an intellectually honest observer, adequately debunk an enormous number of ideologies if you witness Bitcoin in the wild. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Alan Farrington and Sasha Myers, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thank you. Thanks. So good to have you guys here. Um, just by way of very quick introduction, you are the co-authors of the excellent book, Bitcoin is Venice, which Alan is showing on the screen. Um, this is a you know, unsurprisingly to me, at least I know I'm very familiar with Alan's work and, um, I know he's one heck of a writer and a thinker, Sasha, this is kind of an introduction to you, uh, for me. I don't think I'd seen much of your work before this, this book is fantastic. Um, I think although the title is Bitcoin is Venice, you actually go into a lot of ideas that aren't Bitcoin specific necessarily, but they sort of highlight the or emphasize the value or importance of Bitcoin. I think, as you yeah. said, they kind of naturally fall out of the discussion, which is a, a really useful approach, I think, versus coming at people with raw, raw Bitcoin. It's better to sort of explain the underlying ideas and, you know, theory and, and whatnot to help people get their head around Bitcoin. 
uh, I think is, is much more useful overall. So with that, all that said, I would love to know just to start, what is this book? What Bitcoin is Venice is kind of a strange title. Um, people might be like, what in the, that, what Venice is a city? How is Bitcoin a city? And why did you guys write it? What was the motivation? What's the origin story for this book? Yeah, I think there's kind of two answers to that. Um, one directly addresses the title Bitcoin is Venice. So uh, Bitcoin is Venice is the name of one of the chapters of the book, which was adapted from an essay that I wrote uh, maybe about a year or so before we were putting the book together. Um, and it's deliberately romantic, let's say. It's not supposed to be remotely literal. So I would, we might eventually in this discussion get around to what the, the point of that name of that essay is. Uh, but I wouldn't take it too seriously. It's it's uh, it's just supposed to be rhetorical, I think. Um, but just getting into the first answer, the the book itself came from uh, some essays that we that we'd written, and um, at the time, there was certainly no intention to turn it into a book. It wasn't you know we didn't think of ourselves as writing chapters for what this would end up becoming. Uh, but what we were writing about across the different essays was clearly connected. And as you actually already mentioned in the intro, the, the connection wasn't so much Bitcoin. It was more our evolving thinking around capital and, and capitalism. And so the, the subtitle essays of the past and future of capitalism, I think is actually a far fairer reflection of what the, of what the book is about. And, and ultimately the decision to call it Bitcoin Venice is, is purely that. I mean, I quite like it. Well, I think it's good rhetoric anyway, but it, it was by far the most popular of these original essence. So it was kind of, you know, it had some brand value on its own that we were trying to tap into. Um, and so in terms of in terms of this collection of essays, um, I think after after Bitcoin is Venice, which was the the final one that we had published individually, it had been so unexpectedly successful that uh some, I mean, there was some just direct feedback of you should turn this into a book that I didn't, to be completely honest, I didn't really know what to do with because it's, um, that one certainly, I think, stands alone pretty nicely. There's there's not a huge amount to add in, in terms of the point that's being made in that essay and, and in that chapter. But at the same time, we, you know, we were aware of this, like I said, involving, uh, evolving thinking around capital and, and to a large extent how Bitcoin fit into that picture. And so I think that leads nicely to the the second part. I'll, I'll let Sasha describe this, but I'll, I'll say it up for you. Um, that actually it probably goes, the whole thing probably goes back way, way, way before even writing the essays because where the essays even come from really is probably about four or five years worth of discussion mm. uh, just between us, between some, some other friends and, and colleagues as well but it really did take quite a while to even get to a point where we thought oh we should you know we have enough material here to to write about this but i do want to add to the years of mulling this over before we wrote any of it down yeah as as you said it starts with a discussion this discussion we're having amongst ourselves you and i but then also other other friends and i guess the broader topic is very much economics, finance, understanding capital. And 
a recurring theme was that it was difficult for us to find a measure that was consistent through time, as in something that you could compare everything else to that isn't being corrupted. Mm. And that's so important in pretty much any scientific endeavor, right? Just think mm -hmm. of if you want to measure something, you want to meter it, you're going to need units, mm -hmm. metrics. And when we're thinking about finance, when we're thinking about capital, that theme kept recurring. Like, are we picking up information that is unaltered? Are we picking up information that we can compare through time? So we had tons of discussions. I remember early days about GDP growth and how this, what does it, what does it even mean to say that GDP has increased by 10 times in whatever, however many years, because we're not making 10 times more of what we were making before things like that. So we were having mm -hmm. these discussions. And so that is then turned into a string of essays, which we realize have echoes of each other. Mm -hmm. And eventually we have enough of them that we can put them down side by side and say, hey, this creates a bit of a narrative. We definitely need to write way more things in between and link them in a way that's here. But we've got the bones of a book here. And so that's mm -hmm. that's really the the arc of how that happened. Interesting. So although the title is Bitcoin is Venice, this is more of a book focusing on the nature of capital and capitalism. Yeah. And then Bitcoin is um, obviously a perhaps one of the greatest developments of capitalism. Um, would, and I'm, I'm familiar, too, with your work, Alan. I read it recently, which is also an excellent piece. Capital in the 21st Century, I think was the title. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So would it be useful here? Because I think in that piece, you are making the argument that the killer app of Bitcoin is that it allows us to price capital properly. Okay. And that has significant ramifications for capitalism. Would it be useful here, before we get into the meat of the book, to just really define capital and capitalism, given that these yeah, yeah, center, so. center, central pillars of the book? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I don't mean to sort of call out of answering a question or, or turn it around too much, but there is a point worth emphasizing that actually attempting to answer this is recurrent in the book not that it can't be answered but that mm -hmm. it is quite complicated that i don't think there is a simple answer or rather maybe an even better way of thinking about it is that there's more than one approach to it there's no mm -hmm. single answer you know from which everything else follows there's a mm -hmm. lot of different ways you can think about what capital is and if anything what we're trying to explore in the book is firstly connecting lots of these different interpretations mm -hmm. uh, but also ensuring that you know, while none of them are uniquely right, we always don't want any of them to be wrong either. So that they're, the connections are, are consistent. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I'll give one now. Sasha might actually have a different, um, yeah, yeah. He's, Sasha's turned the page where, uh, where, or well, one of the many pages, I guess, where we, we mentioned, um, an economist called Hernando de Soto. So we referenced his book, The Mystery of Capital, uh, quite a few times throughout our own. And he gives a definition, which is, slightly rhetorical it's so he is an economist but it's not 
a precisely economic definition. It is a little bit abstract, but he calls capital economic potential energy, which I think has a a lot of a lot of weight to it. There's there's a lot that you can unpack there, but for almost every every domain in which we try to apply our analysis, we think this is really, really effective. And in some cases, even I'd say profound as well. So to tease it out maybe just a little bit, it's anything that human action has gone into constructing over time, but which is not yet realized. Like the the benefit, the 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 ultimate value mm. that it is hoped will be the the construction will enable uh hasn't actually happened yet and so you can think of it i guess kind of like a battery in some sense that rather than just doing work and enjoying the benefit it, it, in a somewhat physical sense right you're doing the work but you're storing it up so that you can mm -hmm. choose when at a later date to release it uh more purposefully let's mm -hmm. say uh, so that's one definition. That's one that we like a lot. We reference a lot. Mm. Did you want to throw in a completely different one? Well, maybe more prosaic would be things which we can hope to have future use for. Mm -hmm. That's another way yep. of thinking about it. Because one thing you mentioned here is it has to come from prior human action. I'm not sure that all capital needs to have that. Like in some capital can just you think of commodities or resources. Let's try accept that. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think it's anything that's of use to us for future action. And of course, whenever so you you can you can think of capital as any so it could either it's already it's already there or it's work mm -hmm. that you have put in so mm -hmm. that you are now faced with a situation that's more helpful to you. Um just imagine you have a you, you you get into your bedroom and everything's just just it's chaos in there. Mm -hmm. It's not really useful in that in its present situation because if you want to get anything, you don't really know where everything is. So you put time and effort into cleaning it up, mm -hmm. and now everything's tidy. You know where everything is. It's now in a more orderly state. You sort of built capital in a way because you can now use that space mm -hmm. more efficiently. It's like that's one way of describing capital in there. It was kind of facetious because when we talk about it here is also more economic capital, right? So it is it is about act, the action of of people trading in a marketplace and things like that. But right. we could almost bring it down to very, very simple daily actions as well as things that create future value. Yeah, no, great points there. And then I, I love this question too, because obviously namesake of the show, what is money? complicated yeah. question lots of different answers but capital is a very similar question it's like there's yep. there's kind of the simple economics definition right which is something like uh capital is that which allows us to create more consumer goods something to that effect right it's either a capital right. good or a consumer good um which would probably harken back to the economic potential energy like it's something that we're it's deferring consumption to create it, but it allows us to enhance or expand future consumption because it lets us create more of the things, the, the consumables, whatever it may be. Um, and then we're building these things in layers, right? Like there's capital goods that produce capital goods that produce capital goods that yeah. ultimately yeah. produce consumer goods. And that whole stack is 
kind of like the economy or civilization in some way. Um, but the, the relationship to time is really interesting to me in that we, we have to capital has to be constructed out of human time. Like it takes time, yeah. right? Deferred consumption and human time to create it. But then it also seems like it, it almost a way that I've interpreted it. I'd love to hear your feedback on this. It's a thing that accelerates a human toward the attainment of an aim in time, right? Because it's not just like in the essay that I'm referring to capital in the 21st century, you say capital is tools, which is a very prosaic and useful definition, but it's not just like wrenches and hammers and machines. There's also, you know, human capital and political capital and reputational capital capital. Mm -hmm. There any of these things that help you get something done more quickly, like maybe your reputational capital lets you execute a deal more quickly. There's <laughs> sort of a, it's helping you attain an aim, even though it's not some physical tool necessarily. So it, it's interesting how it can be both physical, but also abstract in that way. And and there's, it, it's something, yeah, again, the, the investment of time now lets you do things satisfy wants or aims more quickly later something to mm -hmm. that effect yeah no i i really like the use of the word and, and the concept too i guess of acceleration mm -hmm. i think that's another really helpful avenue to unpack what you might mean by capital um i think to to push that a little bit and maybe tie in uh the example sasha was giving before part of the reason that we we like to start with DeSoto's uh, more rhetorical definition, but then, you know, even pushing it further to exactly the kind of things that, that Sasha was describing, which seem like they are at that point completely outside the realm of, of economics, is that the link to time is, first of all, absolutely fundamental to understand not just what capital is because you can give the dry economic definition of like it's a tool right or it's mm -hmm. something that lets you create something else um but that doesn't on its own really give you any insight into what what the relationship of the capital is to humans mm -hmm. to the humans who created it to the humans who intend to use it to, to humans are, who are affected by its existence really in any way and i think by far the the most explanatorily helpful concept in, in linking all of it together is is time and i think that's what gives us the bridge to to move the definition into things that to start with seem maybe like they have an economic component but but it's it's fuzzy whatever it is mm -hmm. and then you know by the end of the book we we hope at least we, we think that a, a decent job to areas where there's just it's, we're just clearly not talking about economics anymore but the the thread is that what we are talking about is how people are choosing to act with their time and with each other mm -hmm. and so again we think that if we if we have a very first principles approach to this and and we're we're defining these these concepts that we're we're grappling with consistently that should be fruitful and and you you first of all you know you shouldn't be saying anything that's just i guess wrong straight out the gates right you don't you don't want the definition to be um you know so broad that it's it's unhelpful 
Um, but you do want to preserve that that thread of how far can you how far can you push this and still be helpful in terms of thinking about how humans behave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's really a a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. I have to, I have to insert one other question here. I do want to ask about, so that's capital. I do want to ask about capitalism, but before that, just to put the money question in here, it's often said that money is the most liquid form of capital, which as you point out also in your essay is a bit of a tautology because everything that's, I'm not sure if I'm saying this exactly correctly, but basically every form of capital that's being traded exhibits some degree of moneyness, right? Whatever it's uh, liquidity premium might be. So when you say money is the most liquid form of capital, um, you're just saying that I forget the actual tautology that you highlight. I your... think it's um, I, I don't yeah I don't think I remember the exact wording of it either. But the the point there is to try to give a helpful definition of liquidity in the first place. So yes. what getting at is that that as a starting point is an unhelpful definition of liquidity or an unhelpful way of explaining liquidity. Because what is helpful is thinking of capital as liquid to the extent it can be converted into money both quickly and easily. Right. And so what, uh, or what? Sorry, what I say in that essay, I'm recently say at various places in the book as well, is that it becomes tautological if you're using, if you plug money in, because money can be converted into money with no difficulty and in no time, so you haven't really learned. Yes. And you're sort of inverting the traditional, uh, I guess, 
what people typically think of entrepreneurship is like make more money, right? Make more profits, increase yeah. cash balances. But the reality is you actually want to increase capital, right? You want to increase yeah. the yeah. amount of capital in the world. Money is more of like the tool you're using to facilitate the creation of more capital. Yeah. Um, so is that, would that, does that get at your definition of money that it's something more like it's a form of capital because it's accelerating us towards our aim of creating more capital. It's almost like a meta tool <laughs> in that way. <laughs> That's, I quite like that actually. Yeah. That we don't say that. Yeah. I mean, clear. Well, I think of money as the thing that goes into the building of capital and that then flows out of the capital that you have built. Mm -hmm. And so it's clearly linked in that sense. And you use it as a tool. So the mm -hmm. money is the tool for capital formation. But yeah, that's 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 the link I see. And yeah, it's interesting what you were adding there, but we don't really explore it. Yeah, I, I feel like we we explore it from the exact opposite starting point, which I don't think is a contradiction at, at, at all. I think it's just kind of a different framing of the same the same issue. That if anything, what we're saying is that these these properties of money that you're describing, Josiah Robert, are, if anything, we, we kind of take it for granted that there is a money and it's more like, okay, assume there's a money uh, based on its qualities, what will the implications for capital be? Because it's capital that we really want to analyze. Um, which obviously is where is where Bitcoin comes in. I mean, the, the focus for the most part is really more just on sound money, mm -hmm. um, and so Bitcoin kind of falls out as a as an obvious example of that. But that's that's a really interesting angle. Actually, we 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 don't investigate it the other way around. Uh, yeah, maybe we should maybe write something else about that. <laughs> Second edition, new chapter. Uh, I'm reminded here too the stocks and flows, which you also talk about in the essay. It's like we want to increase capital stocks. That's like the yeah, main yeah. mission of this collective human enterprise, like more goods and services. At I've, What are the three terms you say, like new, better, faster, cheaper, or something to that effect? Uh, yeah. Good question. Yeah, it's definitely new. I should know this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> new, better, cheaper. Yeah, that's yeah, what new, it is. New, better, cheaper. So, so like more variety and more quality of goods and services obviously through this capital accumulation process, those are the stocks we want to optimize or, or enhance, maximize, I guess you would say. But then the flow that enables all of that is money, right? Money is like the, the flowing, yeah. the flow structure that lets us create more of these stocks, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, stocks and flows is a, an extremely important concept in the book. I'd say it's one of the maybe what, two or three not much more than that sort of central uh, themes that we keep coming back to and we keep employing in, in different situations. And I, I guess I could probably tie it to money quite quickly or at least explain the relationship with money and capital and why that concept is useful, which is just that you need stocks to create flows, mm -hmm. but flows will only ever replenish stocks. Mm -hmm. You You can't you can't have flows alone and 
not care about what is happening to the salts that create them. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I, I mean, I would argue that would be true in, in any setting where you're labeling things correctly, which, you know, we go into quite a few, but at a kind of a base level in economics, capital is the stocks and money is the flows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, I think these are such important descriptors because it's almost like the most general way of talking about complex systems, right? Stocks and flows is there's <laughs> static yeah. things you're trying to measure or increase right. and there's flows between them that you're yeah. monitoring. And, and actually, I can, I can immediately link it to something you said a couple of minutes ago. Uh, picking up on one of your comments, Robert, that in order to properly conceptualize stocks and flows, you need to be clear about time, mm. right? That mm. time is utterly fundamental to ensuring that you are applying even the terminology of stocks and flows correctly. Yeah. Uh, you know, never mind uh, whether your whether your description of the system is is accurate. Right. Um, I don't. Do we want to do we want to build on that hour? Should we save it for maybe minus chapter three? No, just go for it. Right, that a flow is over a period of time, yeah, and that a stock is at a moment in time. Yes, and just being able to then tape those two ideas and understand that stocks are linked through time by flows. Yes. So to get from one stock to another stock, you need a flow in between. That gaps the the the, the period. So I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that. Oh, I think that's for now. I think that's good. That's really uh, it's, it's really good, and it for my accountant mind kicks up here, and it's like, oh, the balance sheet is the stock. Yeah. Yep. The yeah. P and L is the flow, right? It's like. Here's yeah, exactly. what happened between period A and period B, and here was the impact on the snapshot of the business, the the stock, which was, you know, balance sheet at December thirty one fourteen and December thirty one fifteen, right? And the the P and L is the but, flow in between. Yeah. You know, so, it was quite. I don't. I don't have much you want to get into this, but um, just referring back right to the start, we we're saying how the book came about, right? That we've been discussing this for a long mm-hmm. time, so. Exactly that context is where we first had this discussion. Yeah. As in mm. how to understand financial statements mm. and, or how to how to better understand, but how to more properly understand them um, relative to, I guess, poor methodologies that we had encountered that led to uh, nonsensical conclusions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so actually, we, it's funny that you went in that direction, Robert, you know, we're describing this in a very abstract way and you're thinking, ah, accounting is an example. It actually happened the other way around for us. We used accounting mm. to even come up with this called, well, look, we didn't invent this obviously, but to identify that this is a, an appropriate application of the concept. And then over years <laughs> realized this can be generalized. Actually, mm. this, this mm-hmm. goes beyond just financial statements. Arguably goes beyond the second all this as well. Or, yeah, very much so. I, the whole seems like everything in reality is a bit of a complex system, and stocks and flows <laughs> are just the right language to deal with them. Yeah, map yeah. them. Well, everything, everything in I guess at least social reality involves interacting. There are humans interacting across time. Yes, and and hence stocks and flows are unavoidable. Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay, so. Great opening discussion. I do have to ask the one last question, though. So we've talked about capital. We've talked about money. 
we talked about socks and flows accidentally. <laughs> um, what is capitalism? Now, this is a term, again, a lot of people look out on the world today and they see all of these problems and you hear that label, late stage capitalism, and yeah. nothing gets under my skin more than that. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll put forth one definition that I really like from Hoppe. He says that capitalism is, um, what first socialism he says is an institutionalized policy of aggression against private property and capitalism would be the opposite of that, right? It's an institutionalized policy of respect for private property and consensual transfers of titles of private property. Basically, basically everyone keeps what they earn and they can trade with one another. That's essentially his definition of capitalism. But I'm wondering if you guys have other, um, descriptors to add to that in the context of this book i mean yeah i i don't think i don't think we really have a better definition than than hoppers i think our to the extent we talk about this in the book i think our focus is slightly different so there is an entire chapter which is called this is not capitalism which i think taps mm -hmm. into the same sentiment uh that you express robert around uh people misusing the uh the word and and the concept um what we talk about there is much as the title suggests is more just in the negative it's it's more kind of debunking in tone i think the the only the only place where we venture into a more of a i guess a prescriptive definition it's quite it's different to hop as it's not in disagreement i think it's more like the, the tone is a different one it's more like an aesthetic uh an aesthetic view of of what we're looking at whereas his is, is clearly very precise and uh you know it's clearly uh in the realm of political philosophy whereas ours i forget did you find it but yeah yeah let me read it out um yeah yeah you're right yeah so sasha's find a page of this uh, in, Capitalism, in yeah. an economic system respecting and encouraging the nurturing replenishment and growth of capital so i think robert your initial definition talks about the preconditions to setting up the system mm -hmm. and what we're describing here is the mindset that you need to have once you're in that system so mm. absolutely capitalism essentially is a system that respects private property and allows for for free trade between individuals and then a capitalist or the idea of capitalism is for that capital to be accumulated for what we've been talking about, essentially the uh, growth and improvement and uh, greater affordability of consumer goods and of things that people want. Mm -hmm. yeah. Although actually, so now that you've mentioned it, I don't mean for this to be too controversial, but I'm not sure that I agree with that original form of definition, mm -hmm. or no, or maybe not that I explicitly disagree, but I it it strikes me as incomplete. Because there's a point that I, I don't think we ever say this too explicitly in the book, but it, I think it, it does come through in a couple of points we make that we don't think capitalism is synonymous with free trade. I know that's not what Hoppe is saying either, mm -hmm. um, but I I would I would say as almost is it a counterexample? It's like a hypothetical counterexample, I guess that you could have a social system with complete respect for private property uh 
perfectly free markets. People can trade the titles, you know, all in line with everything that, that Paul has outlined there, but in which as Sasha just described in terms of the definition we gave, there is no attitude. There's no widely held attitude encouraging capital accumulation. Mm. It doesn't seem like the, that one necessarily follows from the other. I think Popper's definition is almost certainly a precondition for, for what we identify. Yeah. But if anything, I think this is maybe a nice, a, a nice way of describing why this book isn't, is more kind of philosophical than it is just about mm -hmm. economics. Mm -hmm. um, because what we're more interested in analyzing is that attitude. Mm. It's from that starting point of property, free trade, so on and so forth. How, how do people behave? How maybe should people behave mm -hmm. uh, with slightly more incentives than, you know, than just the property itself. And then obviously we, we've talked about most of the rest of it already, which is the actual capital to begin with, but then ultimately money as well. Right. Okay. Here's another, here's, a, here's another, all right, now, now we're cooking, now we're cooking. So I'm thinking there, you, let's take, let's take the extreme, uh, the other extreme communism. You could argue that under communism, this is going to get heretical. <laughs> Which is uh, the, just to define that the abolition of private property. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, yeah. So leather boots, like we're going full on abolition. You can just imagine that even under that system, there exists some accumulation of capital mm -hmm. because you can force, just think of like uh, space race, right? The Soviets did achieve a number of discoveries and, 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 and things. So clearly they did accumulate some capital. Mm. And so I think an interesting way of reframing this would be capitalism is the system which allows for the greatest accumulation of capital. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. That's the thing. That's <laughs> so that would be another way. Uh, uh, okay. Which almost oh, certainly tongue in cheek. Yeah, right. So even though you could technically do it with another system, it's just like swimming against the tides. Like, why would you want to do that? Mm. So find the preconditions for your system, your complex system, that will allow you to accumulate that capital at the greatest possible speed with the greatest possible quality like all those things like that right. would be another way you could define capitalism and that will then naturally get you to the conclusion that respecting private property and say right. all right. of that is the way but then it it flows from that rather than starting from that definition right mm. it's it's mm. and you start with the attitude so maybe that's that maybe one way in which yeah yeah, I like it. yeah 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 and those preconditions are perhaps summarized as like a universal respect for life, liberty, and property, right? Like don't hurt each other, don't restrict or incarcerate each other, and don't steal each other's stuff. And then all of a sudden, if you have that generalized attitude, well, you maximize capital accumulation. I guess there still needs there still needs to be that attitude of delayed gratification, though. That's the other piece. Yeah, I think you need... In addition to, I, I, so again, this is going back to what, what am I now uh, I get heretically arguing is maybe missing from Hoppe's definition. You, you need all of those. They are necessary, but they're insufficient. Yeah, you also need uh, a combination of a, a generalized deferred gratification. And I think 
something along the lines of of creativity or or a will to build or something to that effect. There's not there may be some there may be a word for this that's escaping just now that, that captures it more concisely. But again, I, I I'm really convinced that you need some way of capturing the attitude that people have in addition to these effectively legal circumstances that they find themselves in. Mm. Uh, this is we might be getting very tangential now but i'm reminded of something i read i don't know what it was but there were there was an argument being made that there was the protestant reformation was kind of like the original spirit or fueled the original spirit of capitalism and that it is you know when you start to consider yourself in the context of an afterlife or whatever you start to really have this um motivation to have delayed gratification right like what the work you do in the world is not really about you it's about others it's kind of a christian ethic do you think that plays into it to some extent that people's religious inclinations planted that seed for delayed gratification that gave rise to capitalism so it's where it is us and work ethic right um yeah, that's right. I think that's that's where I got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that Max Weber's. Uh, so I would say definitely those inclinations were incredibly helpful in helping those countries. So in Weber's work, he's mostly talking about the Netherlands, about England, about Protestant Europe. It's definitely helped those countries in that moment in time. But we need to pay clear homage to the Catholic countries, which in the late Middle Ages started to incubate capitalism. So in Northern Italy, or just the Italian states, um, then the low countries as well, which would have been Catholic at the time. But clearly, uh, whether or not it's specifically associated with the Protestants, that only the Protestants could have done this, I, I don't think that's necessarily true, but it's definitely true that there were some aspects of that mindset, which was really, really beneficial to them tapping into that proclivity for humility and capital, simply because mm-hmm. instead of taking the fruit of their labor and consuming it, they're just plowing it right back in the field. Well, mm-hmm. At that point, you're on the treadmill of accumulation, which is an exponential curve. Mm-hmm. And that really is what uh, has been driving improvement across uh, across the world in recent centuries. Mm. Uh, I wonder if you wanted to add anything to that. Um, maybe just again a question of flipping the framing that this is this is getting to something that we, we talk about towards the end of the book. Actually, this maybe not worth going into too much detail now, uh, but that if you have a sufficiently general uh, appreciation of what even constitutes capital, you can. S- you're comfortable talking about things like cultural capital. I don't think we ever refer to anything as religious capital, but it would be easy to see how the, what something might mean by that would, would fit quite cleanly in, yeah. in our discussion. Yeah. And I think in terms of flipping the framing, um, a way of interpreting the way you, you set up the question, Robert, is just that certainly there are religious predispositions that become... Um, even if not explicitly economic, in fact, probably not explicitly economic, mm-hmm. become widely held attitudes mm-hmm. that maybe more explicitly in a cultural realm 
are clearly encouraging capital accumulation. And hence, you could argue, I don't mean this in like an overly deterministic way, but perhaps it's only a matter of time until, you know, those people encounter uh, or find themselves uh, applying those ideas in an economic realm. And mm. I guess our point would be that's not a surprise because there's enough in common there, right? There is that thread uh, in order to transfer the attitude because the what th these domains have much more in common than they than they do um you know then the, they're they're much more similar than they are dissimilar they're they're still um they're still you know humans deciding how to interact socially across time mm -hmm. and so the same lessons are applicable uh i think maybe just be careful about the the causation i i i don't think i'd be entirely comfortable i think this is more or less what sasha would say in a more applied context or a more historical context i don't think i'd be entirely comfortable saying it's you know because you are pro protestant you right. therefore have xyz economic i know you weren't saying that i yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of squashing that uh over simplification yeah i think maybe it's more like the classical liberal ideology itself is a form of capital right and that it, it accelerates yeah. us in our aim to accumulate more capital or maybe even i don't know if it it doesn't implant, well yeah i mean plant the so seed bars insofar as a classical liberal or classical liberal attitude uh sets the stage once again for Hoppe's definition yeah you've got most of it there right, right. You, have, you would maybe again you would maybe approach that with a more explicitly political attitude whereas pulp is i think it's fair to call it kind of political kind of economic but the the same behavior i think emerges from um just reframing that originally legal attitude as more of a social one let's say about how you ought to treat other people mm -hmm. uh how you ought to treat yourself as well right. Yeah, moral intuitions almost. Is it? Yeah. Um, okay, that's that's all really good stuff. Uh, all, there's one other definition that I really liked. I think it was Saifedean. Capitalism is what happens when you leave people alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was pretty nice and tidy. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. 
Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Um, okay, so that's all really good stuff uh, with that sort of basis. I think we can move into the book itself. Um, chapter one is titled Wrestling with the Truth. Subtitle is Discovery and Knowledge as Aesthetic codified and practical and you guys open with a very um unexpected discussion um you're actually comparing bitcoin's history and the the ways in which it mirrors the development of mixed martial arts uh which i did not see coming at all and um i, I yeah i just thought it was it's really good so i maybe just want to th- throw it over to you guys at that it's like what in the world does bitcoin's development <laughs> have I, to do with I, mixed martial before, arts before we even talk about the content can i tell you the story of like why that why does this exist please, like, this come about? so it's actually my disagree with you you might have an alternate history of this but i think so again going right back to uh at the start we mentioned that we've been discussing all of this for for years and years before mm-hmm. writing it down and writing it down well before coming to book i think the mma discussion so the parallel between mma and and free markets or maybe strong that the argument is a free market mm. that's probably the longest running discussion thread that we've had i i remember talking to sasha about this a long long time ago and he, i mean you should obviously definitely talk about this yourself because you're the uh you're the mixed martial artist yeah yeah um but i i also remember spending probably four or five years every time sasha brought this up me saying you need to write this down. Mm. I, I just never did it. And I, I guess I should be thankful we never did it because when we did decide to turn a series of essays into the book, the first new bit of content that was written was the was this chapter uh, precisely because I don't remember exactly how I phrased it. But it was something along the lines of like, finally, you have an opportunity. Like I've been telling you this for five years. Please now do it. So what would you like to add to that? Yeah. It definitely was one of my go-to pub rants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, just the, I, I do, uh, just as a hobby, uh, MMA, I train MMA and I really got into the history of it. I was fascinated by how much the sport had evolved in just a few decades. And I was looking for the root causes and it was interesting because I started seeing so many parallels between what the journey of martial arts in the past 30 years, really, and what you would expect to see in a free market where you're allowing free market either of goods and services or even of ideas. And it mm-hmm. probably is a mix of ideas and um, and then a, a good in a way, which is the the art itself, right? And so just noticing that and ranting to Alan, like, dude, you don't understand. It's so similar in the way in which mm-hmm. essentially you had for such a long time, you, you had arts 
which had been codified and were controlled by a number of elite uh, sensei or whoever was in charge of that school. And that was stopping innovation. It was also stopping any ability to check, mm. fact check what would work, what wouldn't work. Mm. And that's what you would expect essentially in a system, a bit like when we were talking about cognizant just earlier, in a system where you're just not allowed to ask these questions, mm. you're not allowed to do the experiment. You just have, this is how it works. This is what you have to do. Mm. And whenever you encounter the truth and realize that what you're doing doesn't work, what wins out isn't the truth, but it is the political reality of whatever power structure you're under that says, yeah, yeah, yeah no, 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 no. You're not going to challenge the orthodoxy here. You're going to stay within the bounds mm -hmm. of what we'd be doing mm -hmm. and all these things. And the rise of mixed martial arts, especially the UFC, and how that comes out of uh, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which itself had uh, very much gone down that route of, of, ex of testing itself against other arts. Like basically that whole journey leads to the the rise of that sport and the incredible amount of learning that we've made in 30 years for something that's basically been with us since the dawn of humanity, right? Fighting each other. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a great example of when you set the conditions right, you get a massive takeoff and understanding in quality and all those things. Is that exactly what we're talking about? Mm -hmm. Capital accumulation in terms of understanding how to fight mm -hmm. in the last 30 years has been insane because we've created the octagon, so the fighting arena for MMA, where we can test what works and what doesn't work. And we were not allowed to do that beforehand. And you can think of the free market as a way of doing that. Mm. I give you a bad idea, you give me a good idea, eventually the good idea beats the bad idea, the good idea starts to spread, we're talking about liberalism mm -hmm. or or moral attitudes, different things, or we can we can think of religion as a way of over time codifying whatever had worked for that group and trying to put that into a, a, a holy scripture and then mm -hmm. trying and saying this is who we are to try and create that. It's the same here for for any endeavor. Uh, as prosaic as fighting can be, so I, I guess it was it was a nice way of starting with something unexpected. And Alan really pushed for for that to mean books. So yeah, quite, there's there's it. two things I want to add to that. Unfortunately, I haven't fired the quote that I thought I knew where it was. But um, what is it? Yeah, uh, I I thought towards the end of that chapter there was a list of all the contrasts that we were deliberately developing. So th this is the the other point I wanted to make that. Tying back to you know, strongly encouraging Sasha to write this so that we could put it. Um, originally, we had it as the very last chapter because we thought it was kind of. I mean, you're surprised at finding it first is, mm -hmm. is sort of the same point, but it's it's kind of so removed. It's maybe seems unserious in some way, and it's kind of like a happy way to sort of a fun way to finish uh, on a lighter note. But the more I thought about it, the more I, I actually really wanted it to be at the start because it's, I think, two things. It, it's a lot more accessible than anything else we talk about. Like, we, we, we make no pretense that this is an easy book to read. It's mm -hmm. it's quite deliberately edited. Yeah, that's not my fault. Well, oh, yeah, it's <laughs> not my fault. <laughs> I, I will, I'll take full responsibility for that, yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's not 
difficult for the sake of being difficult, but it's, I think that the difficulty comes from deliberately tackling basically as complicated topics as, as we could. Um, and so I like that this was, uh, uh, an easier, more enjoyable way to get into the meat of it, but it's also kind of a trap in the sense that it's not just like, it's also not easy for the sake of being easy. Um, the concepts that it brings to light in this far more accessible way really are critical for, for everything else that we talk about, but we make a point of of teasing them out, but but then also making them really explicit in the first chapter. Unfortunately, I, I now can't find the quote that I thought was right at the end, but it's, it's basically this contrast of this series of contrasts of um, methodologies, I think is maybe the best way of putting it. So on the one hand, which, which basically, which are exemplified by MMA versus, you know, pre-MMA fighting. So, mm -hmm. and, and movies, which we're going to yeah, yeah. That, which is the complete, <laughs> uh lack of anything real is just when you're just completely focused on how things look like numbers mm -hmm. yeah. yeah but so some of these i'm not going to remember all of them i'm not going to be able to rattle them off but uh the key ones i think are um experimentation uh versus well fiat basically just being told what the answer mm -hmm. to something is dynamism so allowing things to change versus stasis forcing mm -hmm. everything to be the same um, different ways of knowing things, I think, is is quite important too. So allowing allowing discovery um, by uh, <laughs> well, that's not full of <laughs> that's, that's more confusing. And uh, allowing discovery by by actually seeing what like this is it overlaps with experimentation pretty obviously, but setting things up that they can run and you can just observe what happens rather than trying to predict it in advance, mm -hmm. especially in a domain where it is essentially unpredictable. Mm -hmm. So I was really happy that we, we found this, I think, more accessible way. And then it's my fault that everything after that is <laughs> horribly dense. Um, but yeah, really happy that we had this, this way of introducing all of these topics. The other point I wanted to mention is that I'm really glad I got Sasha to talk about this this time around because I must have been on maybe four or five podcasts now where somebody asked me about MMA and I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I just, I basically get that rant that Sasha gave me in the pub five years ago. And I'm like, what did he say? What did he say? I'll try to say all of that again. So if you have any questions about MMA, Sasha, it's your time. <laughs> uh, this reminds me, uh, I think it's a Taleb quote. Could be wrong, but it says in in theory there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. I'm pretty sure that was a Yogi Berra quote. Maybe it's Yogi Berra. I have no idea. It's got to be Gandhi. <laughs> Attribution is becoming so impossible these days. Um, but yeah, the, the idea. What's another way to say that? Um, you say like that's that's why we play the game is something we used to say when we played football. You know, it's like there's always the theory of what's going to work best and blah blah blah. But yeah. you, you don't actually know until you, you know, in this case, yeah. hit the mat right in MMA or in yeah. football field or football. You go to the field, and so there's what happened here. I guess martial arts pre UFC slash MMA was more of an oligopoly, perhaps. Right, you had a few of these providers that kind of said here's our dogma here's you know we do jujitsu we do boxing we do karate whatever the things are 
but the ideas weren't intermixing, right? They weren't being yeah. tested against one another. And then with the advent of UFC slash MMA, all of a sudden, all these ideas get put into one forum to be tested against one another. And then we, well, I guess that's what gave rise to MMA, actually. It was UFC. MMA didn't exist before UFC, correct? It was like all these isolated styles, and then it became yeah. blended yeah. into MMA. Yeah, and UFC won. They, they purposely show it as this style versus that style. I remember the, that. It says yeah. Resenge Jitsu versus the boxer and all these things. A bit like a straight fighter game or something like that. Right? <laughs> I remember watching that on, yeah, like it was on pay-per-view television when I was a kid and the guy would come out in his karate suit and it was like a karate guy versus a, you know, American boxer versus a wrestler. Yeah, and it was very yeah. street fighter-esque for sure. <laughs> so what then, so we moved from a less free market of ideas to a more free market of these ideas by ideas. I mean, fighting styles. Yeah. How does that mirror the development of Bitcoin or cool. markets more generally? Yeah. So you mentioned the different arts having been essentially controlled and therefore not allowed to evolve. We can think of individual currencies, mm. maybe as individual arts, where each country says, this is how we're going to run either our system or currency. We're going to have our central bank. This is the value and blah, blah, blah. Mm. This is how it works. Versus a system where you say, hey, no, we're taking that away from you and we're creating a level playing field where it will be through experimentation that we figure out how money should be created mm. or what attributes it should have it, I should say. And it's through experimentation that you eventually get there and nobody's in control of it. Mm. Now, I think that that's a, a nice tee up for yeah. what, what we might think the answer to that is. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to say that nobody can know ahead of time and we still don't know because the match hasn't been completely played out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you might have a guess and we have an educated guess but it's really important to think about that playing field being a level playing field open to ideas and that that is the thing that then leads to us figuring out the answer over time we get mm -hmm. back to that yeah it will take time because eventually we will have capital in terms of we will have understood something about how money needs to uh, be mm -hmm. for it to be as helpful to us as capitalists trying to accumulate capital mm -hmm. and um, yeah mm -hmm. something else I'd add to that maybe provides a, a useful segue although I don't know how much longer if you want to stay on MMA but um, is it I think a key I think a key characteristic that falls out of, of Sasha's description there is intellectual humility mm -hmm. so you, you can you can characterize you know the octagon and uh, I just competition in general. You can maybe characterize it kind of aggressively, like no, we we need to we need to do this. We need to know. We need to find the answer. But I'm not sure that that's. It maybe depends what point you're trying to make. But I'm not sure that's the the best way to. Um, oh yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I'm getting to that segue though. I I <laughs> I don't think that that aggressive view is the best way to capture the real motivation of wanting to do, wanting to run the experiment, right? Wanting to have competition, wanting to put everybody in the office. 
gone and find out. If anything, you do that because you acknowledge you don't know. So it's it's mm-hmm. everyone in their isolated, you know, you, you called it ol- oligopolistic. I think it's also quite appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, codified but untested mm-hmm. fighting styles, currencies, mm-hmm. uh, who I think it's far more appropriate to call arrogant, basically, mm-hmm. you know, not intellectually humble because they're insisting that they are the best or that they know what to do or, or whatever it is, mm. but are refusing to uh, allow circumstances that could falsify that. Mm. You know, if they were if they were really confident, they would charge straight into the octagon and win. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but they but they don't. And so I think that's that's a key that's a key concept to keep in mind in terms of how we then progress the argument because the couple of par- uh, sorry the couple of chapters that follow this uh, definitely chapter two and three and then it, it gets a this changes a little bit after that but very much chapters two and three are quite they're quite negative they're quite critical they're we're not really putting forward that much that's either original or constructive we're really using these tools that we that we developed over the course of the mma chapter basically to debunk a lot of what's a lot of what is uh, what we call mainstream, I guess. But a key thread to that debunking is that the mainstream position is extremely arrogant. Mm. It thinks that, or it encourages in the people who who advocate for it that they can know things mm-hmm. that they can't possibly know. Mm. And so I think that's a that's a good segue, right? You're happy with that? So happy. Good stuff. That's excellent. I and so we might venture to say something like fiat, right? This idea of saying something is rather than letting the market determine what it is, is almost fundamentally intellectually dishonest or arrogant um, because it's untested, right? And it's, you're not subjecting it to the free market of ideas. It's not competing based on its own merits. It actually requires some anti-competitive measures to, to exist, right? But if, um, I'm reminded here of the what, uh, um, what the Oracle, the the oh Greenspan. That's that's the name I was trying to think of. He said something to the effect that um, a sound store of value had to be illegal for the U.S. dollar system to work. Basically, like if you gave people access to a sound savings technology, they wouldn't use the U.S. dollar. So like the dollar would it- fail in a freely competitive marketplace. Um, and so I, the, the Bitcoin thing here is interesting to me though, because obviously everyone on this call, big Bitcoin proponent, we would probably all choose Bitcoin as our top fighter if we're going to pick <laughs> which money's going to win, but it's simultaneously a leveler of the playing field. It is. It's like all the anti-competitive measures that made fiat work. Bitcoin undermines them to some extent, right? Like capital yeah. controls yeah. and things like that. So it's an interesting sort of double whammy. And like, it's not only is it the best money, but it's also leveling the playing field among monies. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know, just general commentary there. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that. It definitely operates at the two levels. Um, and I don't want to push the analogy too far, but the art that ended up winning the first few UFC was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Mm. And it is the proponents of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu who established or set up the UFC because they they knew they would win. 
So it was to their advantage in a way. Like they had this knowledge. Like, yes, we can definitely be the other arts. We just mm-hmm. want to show it. We want to showcase that that knowledge. So they create the space. So mm-hmm. if you if you as a supremely confident currency say, I can take on anything else head to head. It is in your interest to have that be tested. And it's not in the interest of anyone else who is secretly so outwardly arrogant or confident and mm-hmm. secretly questioning because otherwise they wouldn't be in their in that position. Right. So how do they know too far? Like that. Yeah. That's this well Bitcoin is Brazilian Jiu <laughs> Right. Yeah. The next book.